Episode 47 of War in the Book of Mormon, Part 9.3 Fifth Post-Visit War and Battle Analysis, Battle of Hill Cumorah. This episode deals with the final account of conflict in the historical Nephite record. By the end of this episode, the Nephite state will also come to its third and final destructive end. The events linked with this destruction are epic and worthy of Mormon's greatest detail of all his own battles. Yet again, we must peer through his brevity to identify the lessons he is laying out for us. This analysis includes all of the events of the fifth post-visit war, as well as the final and conclusive battle at the famous Hill Cumorah. This final Nephite-Lamanite war began with Mormon still a mute witness of his people's folly and sinful state. As a reminder of what was discussed in the previous episode, Mormon resigned his position in 362 AD at about the age of 49 or 50. He remained as an idle witness until 375 AD when he returned to command his armies at the age of 62 or 63. There are many details of this period. Some of these details were addressed in episode 45 or part 9.1 of this podcast series. Among the details were those provided through letters from father to son and recorded in the Book of Moroni. These letters, though they have no date, are supposed here to have been written during this final war and about events occurring in the progress of the war. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Fifth Post-Visit War, 375-385 to A.D. In general, Mormon's age from 62 to 73, recorded in Mormon chapters 4 to 6. This war includes what I label five separate campaigns and something like 13 battles. Before Mormon came back, the Nephites fought and lost a battle and campaign in and around the city and land of desolation. The Nephites retreated to Boaz, where they won a battle and then lost a battle and campaign in and around the city and land of Boaz. These two campaigns and three battles occurred in 375 AD, making the year rather full of military action. Mormon took command after the loss of Boaz. While still in 375 AD, he managed and lost campaigns in and around the land of Jordan that lasted from 376 to 380 AD. He then led a campaign of general retreat from the various parts of the land northward into a consolidated position on and around the Hill Cumorah that lasted from 380 to 385 AD. Mormon then invited the Lamanite king to have what became the final battle at Cumorah. Geographical Setting Location This war began at desolation, but it quickly moved beyond that. This is a war of scientific boundaries. By this I mean that this war was fought in areas that were defensible through the assistance of the terrain. We see that at desolation and then, I suppose, that the selections of Boaz and Jordan by the retreating Nephites 
were because of the excellent defensive nature of the terrain. Specifically, Mormon said in Mormon chapter 5 verse 4 that the strongholds the Nephites held prevented the Lamanites from getting to the other lands to the north. Such a comment adds weight to my supposition of the Nephites holding geographically defensible positions. Either these places were defiles or passes, or they could have been river crossings or major trail or road networks. I tend to depict such places in the battle analysis sketches that I do as passes. The final battle was fought at a hill and where there was much water, as we are told in Mormon 6.4. The selection of such a place may have been for one or more of three reasons. One, this must have been a place that afforded defensible terrain. Two, it was possibly selected because such a position would force the Nephites to stand and fight rather than fleeing, as had been the case throughout the post-visit war period of warfare. 3. A place with much water may have been useful to Mormon in canalizing the enemy. Canalizing is a modern military term that means to channel or force into a specific route the enemy forces. Terrain slash vegetation. The Hill Cumorah is legendary and it plays a significant role in the lore of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. As I have steered clear of the debate of larger geography of the Book of Mormon, I will not in this episode enter into the debate of which Hill Cumorah is referred to in this final battle. There are various theories and each has value. Suffice it to say that the hill was one that provided advantage to the Nephites in both focusing their military power and in providing defensible terrain. Based on the descriptions of the area and the nature of the fighting, it is assumed here that this was a heavily vegetated hillside. The vegetation might have served to conceal the survivors as they moved from the battlefield. Who was involved? Nephite Army. Episode 45, or Part 9.1, discussed the issue of attrition in forces and the reduction in size of the Nephite Army and the various ten thousands that may have served as the basic unit of organization. This war began in 375 AD and lasted until 380 AD. It certainly resulted in casualties as numerous battles and engagements were fought. A five-year period of consolidation allowed the Nephites to gather all of their forces and this resulted in the army consisting of 23 ten thousands. The armies that fought the battles and campaigns of the first part of the period under discussion probably numbered in the 30,000 range. I will discuss later the interesting operational change of positional warfare, but this meant that garrisons of thousands probably defended a variety of positions to prevent the use of passes, trails, or other mobility corridors that led to the Nephite settlements further north. Mormon gives little indication of spies or other divisions within his army. The command structure seemed to be commanders of 10,000 or chief captains and then the senior commander. Lamanite Forces Mormon gives reference to enormous Lamanite armies in this entire period. His best reference is in Mormon chapter 4 verse 17 where he says that, quote, 
they did come down against the Nephites with all their powers, and they were not numbered because of the greatness of their number. Close quote. This statement expresses the total commitment of the Lamanites to this war. As a result, throughout this war, the Lamanites are assumed to have outnumbered the Nephites by about two to one or even more. This means that their initial attacks numbered in the high tens of thousands to maybe as many as a hundred thousand. The final battle may have been anywhere from over a hundred thousand to as many as five hundred thousand if the Nephite numbers were close to the quarter of a million that is stated in the record. Accepting the total commitment of Lamanite forces is critical to understanding this size estimate. Mormon does not mention, again, the division of Lamanites and robbers. This could mean that either the robbers took over the Lamanite government or that the Lamanites had destroyed the robbers. No mention of robbers does not mean an improvement in Lamanite righteousness or unity, and therefore which of these two possibilities occurred, robber domination or robber destruction, is not critical to the events that follow. Key Leaders in the Battle, Nephite Forces In Mormon chapter 6 and also in Moroni chapter 9, we receive a list of names of various commanders within the Nephite force. Despite this list of names, Mormon never states who commanded in his absence at the beginning of the war. In this era of decline and historical confusion, we are given a long list of names of men who must have held tribal positions of significance. Moroni, Gidgidona, Lama, Gilgal, Limha, Genuum, Kumaniha, Moroniha, Antionum, Shiblom, Shem, and Josh. There is much that is unclear, except that Mormon felt that these names needed to be identified for posterity. Clearly, the most significant leader is Mormon, and his description is given in detail in episode 8 of this podcast series, Lamanite Forces. No names are given for Lamanite leaders throughout most of the post-visit wars. We are told that the Lamanite king was named Aaron in the second post-visit war, circa 330 AD. It is possible, though unlikely, that this same monarch was the king to which Mormon wrote 50 years later. Therefore, it is probable that the king to whom Mormon wrote was his successor. We do know that the Lamanite king led his army into battle against Mormon in that earlier battle outside Joshua. It is likely that the Lamanite king would have been present in some aspect for the final destruction of his foe. Fifth Post-Visit War, 375-380, to The Specific Conduct of the War, prior to the consolidation, Mormon's age 63 to 68, recorded in Mormon chapters 4, 5, and 6. Chapters 4 and 5 discuss the war leading up to the final battle, and chapter 6 is the final battle at Hill Cumorah. This is a continuation of the events discussed in the previous episode. The Nephites ended the fourth post-visit war by regaining all of the land northward in 367 A.D., There was an eight-year absence of war between the two tribal states. Even through that period of no interstate war, there were no details. Mormon simply states in Mormon 4.16, And the Lamanites did not come again against the Nephites until the 375th year. 
Whatever happened in the intervening eight years, one thing is certain. The Lamanites determined to concentrate their forces against the Nephite foe. Nearly every battle in this fifth post-visit war was a case where the Nephites were significantly outnumbered, or at least Mormon's language causes one to think that this was the case. The first battle of this war was once again fought at Desolation, where the phrase from Mormon 417, greatness of their number, is used to express that the Lamanites were attacking with all their powers. As I think about this, I am led to the question, why? What changed in the eight years to generate this complete commitment? In the period before the visit of Jesus Christ, Mormon had linked Nephite dissension to such increases in Lamanite anger and commitment. But now, there doesn't seem to be any explanatory statement, no discussion of dissension. Both sides were wicked, both sides rejected God. At this period, in this fifth war since the coming of Christ, the fury is genocidal. It is possible that such anger and hatred pre-existed this war. One can see a form of genocidal hatred in the other wars during Mormon's command and life, so maybe this war wasn't a difference in kind at all. Maybe it was only a difference in degree. I wish that we had more regarding the sources of the anger and seeming hatred. Mormon provides historic hindsight and analysis as he states in Mormon 4.18, quote, And from this time forth did the Nephites gain no power over the Lamanites, but began to be swept off by them, even as a dew before the sun. Close quote. It is after this quote that Mormon says that the Nephites lost another battle at Desolation, which he describes in 419 as a sore battle. The importance of this phrase is that this was once again at the extensive defensive works at Desolation, and the battle was against the implied overwhelming size of the Lamanite army. It seems that the Nephites were either so demoralized or so completely defeated in this battle that they did not even attempt to defend Teancum, as they had in the previous war, but continued their retreat back to the city of Boaz, which one may presume to be a more defensible position. Despite the flight, the Nephites did successfully defend Boaz against the first Lamanite attack. I suppose that this first defense of Boaz happened as those Lamanite forces most closely pursuing the fleeing Nephites were the ones defeated. This was possibly not the result of the entire Lamanite army attacking with its full force. Certainly, the second attack was a much more consolidated effort on the part of the Lamanites, and again, as stated in Mormon 420, the Nephites fled. This victory resulted in one of the mentioned events of atrocities in Mormon 421, where those captured were offered up by the Lamanites as human sacrifices. I want to make a note that the reference is to women and children only. This is probably because the men were killed either in the fighting or executed immediately following the conclusion of fighting. The flight of the Nephites was complete. In modern times, this would be called ethnic cleansing, as the Nephites gathered all of their people from both towns and villages. This is one of the few references of the variety of communities within the Nephite state. 
It is not surprising that there would be communities of varying size, but that fact goes mostly unmentioned by Mormon prior to this. Mormon resumed command of the Nephite armies after the defeat at Boaz. The loss at Boaz, or even probably the previous loss at Desolation, changed the geographic nature of the defense for the Nephites. It seems that Desolation was a physical geographic boundary, as previously discussed, The loss of that city opened up the Nephites to the potential of attacks from multiple directions. This is brought to light as Mormon expresses that the defenses at Jordan required other defensive positions to augment this primary position. I quote from Mormon chapter 5 verses 3 and 4, And it came to pass that the Lamanites did come against us as we had fled to the city of Jordan. But behold, they were driven back that they did not take that city at that time. And it came to pass that they came against us again, and we did maintain the city. And there were also other cities which were maintained by the Nephites, which strongholds did cut them off that they could not get into the country which lay before us to destroy the inhabitants of our land. Close quote. Mormon gives no time stamps throughout the intermediate fighting in this war. For a general rule, consider that the Lamanites launched a major offensive campaign each year. Desolation was in 375, Boaz 376 and 377, and Jordan 378 to 380 AD. This is a simple way to appreciate the fact that this did not happen all in a week. Of course, this is only supposition on my part. Whether the arrival of Mormon inspired his warriors or he brought a new strategy to defense or the Lamanites were simply battle-weary, is unclear. What is clear is that the Nephites were successful in repelling two consecutive attacks. Mormon, either personally or through direction, defended numerous cities, fortifications, and villages through this time. It is probably in this period that we have the letters written from Mormon to his son Moroni that are recorded in our current Book of Mormon as Moroni chapters 8 and 9. So, following that logic, the fighting in and around the Tower of Sherazah probably occurred as one of the skirmishes or battles at an outlying defensive position. Supposing that there are other battles happening in and around this area, and this time frame is one of the important supports when I describe these events as campaigns more than battles. As the major engagement dominated the story, there were nearly continuous engagements at other locations as bands, units, and armies moved against lesser positions. I will elaborate on this point in just a minute in the technical context section. This campaign also featured some of the worst atrocities conducted by both the Nephites and Lamanites. This was brutal savagery, and Mormon used these events to mark for us and his son the decline of his own people and to foreshadow the ultimate destruction of his people. The final battle in this campaign at Jordan saw another large army of the Lamanites attack and defeat the Nephite army, causing a complete collapse in Nephite defensive preparations. Mormon uses a wonderfully descriptive phrase in Mormon 5-6 when he says, For so great were their numbers that they did tread the people of the Nephites under their feet. Close quote. This emphasizes the size disparity, but it also communicates a possibility of tactics. 
the Lamanites possibly used mass human wave attacks. Their numbers were a weapon in and of themselves. Following the defeat at Jordan, or what I label the Third Battle of Jordan, the Nephites fled and continued their course of scorched earth. Some of the scorched earth policy was the result of Nephite planning, and some was certainly the result of Lamanite rapid pursuit and wanton destruction. There are no more named battles in this war between Jordan and Cumorah. I simply label it a general retreat. Mormon describes it in chapter 5, verses 5 to 7. Quote, But it came to pass that whatsoever lands we had passed by, and the inhabitants thereof were not gathered in, were destroyed by the Lamanites, and their towns and villages and cities were burned with fire, and thus three hundred and seventy and nine years passed away. And it came to pass that in the three hundred and eightieth year the Lamanites did come again against us to battle, and we did stand against them boldly, but it was all in vain, for so great were their numbers that they did tread the people of the Nephites under their feet. And it came to pass that we did again take to flight, and those whose flight was swifter than the Lamanites did escape, and those whose flight did not exceed the Lamanites were swept down and destroyed. Close quote. This was total collapse of the Nephite army and state. Technical context. There are two elements of significance in this portion of the Book of Mormon. The first is the transformation of Nephite conflict toward the defense of fixed, geographically based fortifications. This was a change that seemed to begin with the emphasis on defending the land or city of desolation. I really think of it as an area defense rather than a single city fortification. In that location, Mormon invested the Nephite human and physical resources in defending what must have been a geographically significant position. I imagine it to be a choke point with physical geography defending the flanks. It could have been the sea or cliffs or swamps. We just don't have a sufficient description. Once Mormon regained command of the armies, he again placed the emphasis on defending a geographic location. In that case, the terrain did not seem to support defense of a single location, but there was a need to defend multiple places to prevent Lamanite penetration to the north. One might describe this as an area defense that was something like a network of positions. The second element was the change of Lamanite conflict toward what seems to have been mass human wave attacks. The Lamanites seemed to attack with significant commitment of human resources. This represented as much of a change for the Lamanites as the emphasis on fixed defenses were for the Nephites. The emphasis on the use of people as a major offensive resource was a symbol of the Lamanite recognition of them so completely outnumbering their Nephite opponent. This demographic dominance seems to have been a fact that existed from early on in the conflict. Only at the end did the Lamanites use their massive advantage in people to its full and logical extent. This leads to all sorts of speculation as to why then and not earlier. Maybe there was a more competent and capable Lamanite ruler who could inspire the commitment. Maybe there was a more effective and efficient Lamanite bureaucracy and administration that could organize the resources such that they were better assembled. It is unclear, 
Remember that we are only getting Mormon's Nephite perspective with the intent of leading us back to Jesus Christ. We are not getting any sort of balanced history that allows the reader to see both sides and their motivations and organizations. Battle of Hill Cumorah, 385 AD, Mormon's Age, 73, recorded in Mormon Chapter 6. The final defeat at Jordan completely disintegrated the Nephites. Those who could flee did so, and those who could not were slaughtered. This was a time of complete disorder and trauma for the Nephites. This must have been an emotionally destructive time, as the very essence and definition of the people were destroyed through the wholesale slaughter of those caught in their flight. The Lamanites' success and inevitable behavior of undisciplined armies during the sack of a city meant that the Lamanite king probably had little control over his warriors. The Lamanite army should not be seen as a disciplined army of professional soldiers. Neither should the Nephites at this point either, for that matter. Though being professional soldiers, as were the Roman legionnaires, is a possibility, the behavior, tactics, and historical weight of both the Lamanites and Nephites of this period makes it highly improbable. The Lamanite army or armies was or were probably a welded confederation of tribes and families that came together for the promise of loot and victory. Once this victory was achieved, then the army as a single entity would almost certainly break up into much smaller bands from the various families and tribes and conduct their personal searches for plunder and murder. This seems to be what happened after the victory at Jordan. This interpretation of the Lamanite organizational and political makeup makes it logical that the Lamanite king would accept Mormon's proposal to allow the Nephites time to consolidate at a single place. Mormon wrote a letter to the king asking for such a privilege. I quote from Mormon 6 verses 2 to 3. And I, Mormon, wrote an epistle unto the king of the Lamanites, and desired of him that he would grant unto us that we might gather together our people unto the land of Cumorah, by a hill which was called Cumorah, and there we could give them battle. And it came to pass that the king of the Lamanites did grant unto me the thing which I desired. Close quote. The king granted the privilege, not because he probably wanted to, but because he had no other recourse. He was probably not in a position to control any sizable force to attack whatever large element of the Nephite armies maintained cohesion, and therefore he granted that which he could not deny. Mormon needed the time as well. This is clearly evidenced by the fact that it took him nearly four years to gather all of his separated and scattered people into a single location. I ask that you compare Mormon's efforts with those of the Consolidated Settlement discussed in 3 Nephi and in Episode 43 or Part 7.6 of this podcast series, where the people were gathered within months. Mormon lacked the same level of control over and communication with his people that Laconios had enjoyed in that earlier period. When Mormon finally got control of everyone, the Nephites were fully consolidated with women and children in the camp at Cumorah. This was the sum total of Nephite remnants. There was no other settlement or population center that maintained a culture that could be called Nephite. The size of this battle has been discussed previously in episode 45 or part 9.1. The Nephite army could have been 
as large as anywhere between 46,000 and 230,000. None of the numbers are outside those posted by other contemporary or near-contemporary battles in the Mediterranean world, so they shouldn't be perceived as that radical. The low numbers reflect the fact that the 23 ten-thousands were tribal groupings that had seen enormous attrition over the previous years of conflict. As such, in my opinion, they must have been reduced. How much reduced is open for debate, and that is why there is such a large disparity in the possible sizes of the army. Mormon commanded at this final battle. He placed himself and his 10,000 at the front and seemingly at the center of the Nephite battle line, as we are told in Mormon 6.10, and inferred from the nature of tribal fighting common in other cultures and the fact that Mormon lists his 10,000 as the first one destroyed. There are very few details of this battle. Mormon might have left some shadow of how he planned to tactically conduct the fight in the fact that he discusses his commanders in two groupings. There were 13 named commanders, Mormon, Moroni, Gidgadona, Lama, Gilgal, Limha, Genuum, Kunaiha, Moroniha, Antionum, Shiblon, Shem, and Josh, and another 10 commanders. It is possible that Mormon sought to gain some measure of success by drawing the Lamanites into an L-shaped defense, as I regularly depict in accompanying sketches when I brief this battle with Mormons and the other 12 on one leg of the L and the other 10 units on the other leg. The limited information makes this speculation only. What we do know is that all of the Nephite warriors were slain except 24 individuals two of whom were Mormon and his son Moroni. The way Mormon described the Lamanites as falling upon his people gives support to the supposition of the Lamanites attacking in a massed wave of people. They used the press of their overwhelming numbers to simply crush the Nephites and flow over them like a wave of humanity. This seemed to be the tactic employed by the Lamanites throughout this war, and they employed it with awesome finality in this battle. Battlefield Leadership Mormon does not provide much information of his decisions in any of the various levels of strategy. The first and most clear decision of which we know was the decision to fight a decisive battle. Mormon could have fought a robber-like campaign from the wilderness, and this might have lasted for years or even generations. Rather than do so, he chose to fight a classic decisive battle where both sides met on a battlefield through mutual consent. Mormon also decided to follow his, possibly, standard organization of ten thousands. These organizations were then placed in what appeared to be two subgroupings. The layout of this is unclear. They could have been in ranks of units or the L-shaped design I just mentioned. Significance This battle was ultimately and completely decisive. The victor here ended completely the existence of a society and culture. The Nephites were no more. This was the end of a culture that had developed and existed for nearly a thousand years. The fact that they ended in this manner was crucial for Mormon and his instruction. Their refusal to heed the warnings of a prophet and to truly repent of their sins 
denied them the unity and the power of faithful covenant keeping they needed to win. Mormon provides a mournful lament as he witnessed the carcasses of his slain people from the hill Cumorah after the battle. I quote from Mormon chapter 6, verses 17 to 20. O ye fair ones, how could ye have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if ye had not done this, ye would not have fallen. But behold, ye are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how is it that ye could have fallen? But behold, ye are gone, and my sorrows cannot bring your return. Close quote. Despite the finality of this battle, some Nephites escaped to the south, as we are told in Mormon chapter 8, verse 2. Those groups who did flee the battle were hunted by the Lamanites and were slain, as was Mormon himself. Moroni was left alone to finish the record of his father and protectively deposit that record for Joseph Smith to be guided to nearly 1,400 years later. Lessons Learned Military History The limited nature of detail makes it difficult to draw useful military lessons from this war and battle. Clearly, this was a battle that featured destruction, but the sheer weight of numbers seemed to have provided the isolation and suppression. Lessons Learned Spiritual I want to offer four different points here. 1. We fight as organizations, regardless of size. Mormon taught in the story we have just discussed that when we engage our adversary that we do so in our traditional units. In his case, it was in ten thousands. But in our case, as the priesthood, we should engage in companionships, families, quorums, or councils, regardless of the size after attrition. We need to employ and develop our various organizations so that they can conduct the battle despite loss without needing complete reorganization or significant augmentation. 2. Leaders lead in battle. A leader belongs out front, where they come into contact with the enemy first. This no longer applies in modern combat, as senior commanders are more battlefield managers than they are leaders. I have previously mentioned that the Book of Mormon is not a military primer. That is essential here. Mormon is teaching us about spiritual leadership and not present military leadership. We need to apply this lesson in that leaders must be out front where they can be seen and they need to be the first to engage the opponent. This sets the standard for the rest of the organization to follow. 3. Observe and report. Regardless of how bad the outcome was, all those who have stewardships need to return and report. This may come at the end of a hard day through our prayer to God, or it may be through a stewardship interview, but we owe the Lord our accounting and what was done. Mormon gives his sad and depressing report to all of us. Hundreds of years later, he has set the example. 4. Remember the Principles Mormon never forgot why he won or why they lost. He always recognized the principles of salvation in his actions, and he lamented his people's failure 
to follow those principles and acknowledged that as the reason for their fall. Mormon's Metaphor It is important to use Mormon's own metaphor of the importance of preparation, covenants, and unity in this, his greatest and final large-scale battle in command. Preparation Mormon seemed to have learned from Moroni in terms of how he prepared defenses for cities and even lands. It is interesting to note that he didn't seek to prepare the land around Camorra with defenses or fortifications. The obvious question is, why not? The consolidated settlement of the 3rd Nephi period was surrounded by fortifications. Why not Camorra? Maybe Mormon was seeking to end it all in a final battle. It does seem an interesting lack of effort. He did gather his people together in a single location. Maybe he did ask them to prepare fortifications, and they refused. We just don't know. Covenants. It is clear that the Nephites of this period did not honor the covenants of the Lord, and it seems rather clear as well that they probably hadn't entered into those covenants as they had rejected God. Mormon is a character like that of Ether in the Book of Ether of the Book of Mormon and Jeremiah from the Old Testament in that he was able to see the fulfillment of his prophecies. He called people to repentance and warned them what would happen if they didn't repent, and then he saw the destruction of his people that resulted from their unwillingness to repent. Mormon doesn't record his frustrations or sorrows in detail, as does Jeremiah. I strongly recommend that listeners refer to Jeremiah to understand Mormon's sadness and emotional challenges in this period. The results of the Battle of Hill Cumorah are the results for all those who reject and dishonor covenants. Unity. Obviously, this battle includes physical unity. All of the remainder of those who could call themselves Nephites were gathered into a single location, and they were then defeated in a single battle. It is a sad example of unity in finality. It is also a reminder of what happens when there are no covenants involved in unity. Unity alone is insufficient for protection. What we should be seeking is unity with God through our covenants and the unity with others should lead to that desired connection with God. Conclusion Mormon's record concluded with the total destruction of his people and their culture. This was what Nephi foresaw, as recorded in 1 Nephi 12, verses 18-19, and what caused his heart to be grieved, as we are told in 1 Nephi 15, verse 4. With the destruction of the Nephites, the military history comes to a conclusion. Even in this cursory approach to the history, Mormon still provided some profound lessons to his readers about assisting us to be worthy to stand before Christ. The next part of this podcast summarizes the lessons from this trip through war in the Book of Mormon and hopes to provide a conclusion to this journey. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com. Until next time.